passing out papers really quick. Um, we're going to get started probably just with a quick prayer, um, and then we're going to do our few minutes of meditation. So if you guys would just bow your head with me. If you feel papers brushing your arm, take them and keep them passing. All right. Uh, Lord, thank you so much um, for your word and for this group of people. Um, thank you so much for um, providing us um, in our body with a great group of teachers. Um, God, I pray that tonight as we learn what it means um, that you are sovereign, um, that you would just strip us of areas of our life that um, are not submitted to you in that, um, that you would re reveal yourself to us, um, and that ultimately after being in your word tonight, we would learn to look more like you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so tonight... Um, Ryan is going to be teaching over the fact that God is sovereign, but before we get there, we're going to read through um, Isaiah 46, 3 through 11. So we're going to read it once, and then we're going to have a few minutes to meditate on the scripture, uh, circle what is interesting to you, um, and just think about what is God telling us to do, and then we'll follow up with a few more questions. Listen to me, O house of Jacob all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. So, for just a second, think about what is God telling us to do?
now for the next couple minutes, read through the scripture and think about why does God tell us to do that? And no cop-out answers, like if the detailed explanation. Okay, be thinking about that. Ryan's going to get us started tonight. Um, we'll come back to it at the end. I think I know most of you. There's some faces I've not seen before. So if you don't know me, my name is Ryan Vincent. I am one of the adult ministers at Sunnybrook Christian Church. This is really level. Um, and if you don't know me, you most likely know my wife, Rachel. So um, I am excited. I only got two teaching slots this summer, which just means we have a lot of good teachers and I'm becoming less and less needed. But this is one of them, um, that God is sovereign. And here's what I want to do. We're going we're gonna to be going through a lot of texts if you peeked ahead in your notes. Um, I don't apologize for that. I trust those passages more than my own words, and, uh, and I hope you'll see what we're trying to do as we untangle a, uh, a doctrine that is, if I were to pull every text, it would be every single page of your Bible. It is probably one of the most overwhelming doctrines of Scripture, is that God is sovereign. And yet, before we go too far down that road, it's important that we define our terms, because... I've noticed where, um, where Christians, never mind Christians and unbelievers, but inside ch- like the church discussions where they go off the rails um, is often at the, at, the, at the root of it is that we've, we've just failed to define what it is we're talking about. We're using the same words, but we don't mean the same things. And one of the greatest examples of that is the word gospel. Like, if there's 50 people in here, we could probably get 47 definitions of the gospel. And so when we set out with something that is just so obvious, well, of course, God is sovereign. It's everywhere. Let's make very sure that we're all on the same page as to what we mean by that. So here's my definition. I I wrote mine down, and then we're going to go through those texts and see if I'm right. And since I wrote the part of the lesson after that, I think I am. But here's what it says. To be sovereign... Sovereign is an adjective describing God's power and authority such that he can override all other powers and authorities. Now we're going to have to make sure that we keep this in, um, in tight conjunction with his other attributes because to be sovereign has nothing to do with whether or not he's good or kind or merciful. It's, it's more a, a quality of power and authority. And so he can be a benevolent dictator or he could be a tyrant. We're going to have to look, study the other attributes to, to discern which is which. But this is a quality about God that deals with his, like, 
There's no way that he cannot do what he intends to do. He does not fail. Um, What he intends to bring about cannot be thwarted. Um, There is no... Again, we can't we can't talk about this without talking about the other doctrines, the other qualities of who he is. Um, think back to week one. I'm going to assume that Scott talked about um, transcendence and eminence. That God is both altogether different, and yet in a really weird twist, which is unique to Christianity, he he also draws near. He is otherworldly and very very close and relational. And there's the, did Scott talk about the above the arch qualities of God? The stuff that you and I can have no concept of? Um, <laughs> when, when he creates everything else, there's two categories of existence. There's creator and created. And there's only one person in the creator category. By definition, he cannot not do what he intends to do because what would stop him himself and he's a perfectly coherent being, so he would never disagree with himself. So, ergo, nothing can stop him. And so the, the sovereignty aspect gets really thick really quick. But it's also incredibly practical, which I hope we'll see. Um, however, there are certain objections to the sovereignty of God. I think most of us, if we are... Uh, run-of-the-mill Christians, we, we have an idea, a working knowledge of his sovereignty, even probably an agreement with the concept of his sovereignty, but as it works out practically, we can struggle with it for a number of reasons. First is what's known as the problem of evil. Can anyone articulate to me what, what is what, what problem of evil is? Yes? Yeah, so there, you've got one side of it. He is, a, he is a good God, and he's all-powerful, and yet bad things still happen. So the problem of evil says, if he's all-powerful, but bad things still happen, he must necessarily not be good. Because is it good to let bad things happen to people? Well, no. And is it within his like, ability and his power to, to stop it? Yes. So he didn't stop it? No. So he must not be good. Or the other side of it is, he's really, really good, but these things keep happening. Katrina takes place, children are kidnapped, all this, that, and the other. Well, then he must not really be all-powerful. And so people look at the brokenness of the world, look at the sin that runs raging through this particular world, and the sin that affects our own personal lives. It's called the problem of evil, and they cannot grapple practically with the fact that God is sovereign. And again... If, if you're one of those, I'm not faulting you for it, you'll probably agree with me that he's sovereign. But in your day-to-day life, I bet if I listen to your prayers, you might not sound so sovereign. This is another one. Our unanswered prayers. Or prayers that the answer is just no. It don't really shape how you feel about God's ability to do things, because... Since we're human, we always think we're right. Everybody thinks they're right, otherwise they change their mind. So I think I'm right. And I'm asking for what I believe is right. And it's not taking place as I see fit, as I believe it is right to take place. Again, I think I agree that God is sovereign. It just doesn't feel like it. 
This one I've, I've noticed more and more. Um, there are some of us who just don't like the idea of authority. I don't trust the authority figures that have been in my life at certain points in time. Um, I really don't like, I, I'm, I'm libertarian enough or whatever. I don't like the idea of there being authority structures at all. And you can, you can sniff this out really quickly when you start talking to people about the interpersonal relationships within the Trinity that Jesus chooses to submit himself to the Father. I'll see lots of people, and again, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a younger generation type thing, but I'm, just, I'm seeing it more and more. They just bristle at the idea of submission. That's a, that is a horrible word. It sounds like subjugation to them. So we don't trust authority, but we also just have personal hardships. Talk to anybody who's had hard events in their life. Sicknesses that they cannot figure out. And the, the subject of God's sovereignty, again, I don't know if they'll disagree with it, but they really, I really come up against this. I don't know if it's as true as I say it is. Moment. So we've got to test our definition. That's what we're doing next. I want to test this definition. The method we're going to use, this is a method of argumentation known as a katina. Which is, you really offer nothing new yourself. You take a bunch of texts, trot them out, cut them up, and lay them next to each other. It would be like if I wanted to know, um, if I wanted to make a case for how the Revolutionary War got started, I would go get a bunch of different history books and take their answers to that question and put them next to each other and say, okay, I think we're doing the Katina method. If we read all of these, there's the answer. And that's what I'm going to do with the Bible. When you do it with the Bible, it's, uh, its pejorative term is proof texting. But we all proof text, so we're just going to do it well. Um, I want us to look through these passages. I put them more or less in chronological order so we can see the development of how people, how the biblical authors are thinking about it. So um, you'll notice the first one is Job and the second one is Genesis 50. Um, just to show my cards, I believe the book of Job happened between, um, between, I think right before Noah. Between Genesis 5 and Genesis 6, I believe, is when I would, I would put the book of Job. So, the, the order in the Bible doesn't really matter. That's not the order they were in. Um, so, Job 42. If you recall, the story of Job is Satan goes into God's throne room, um, says, hey, you have this guy, I'd really like to go mess with him, see if I could get him to, to like, defy you, to blaspheme your name. And uh, the reason that he loves you so much, Lord, is because you have, you've blessed him. He's very wealthy, he has a big family, things are just going great for him. If you let me mess with him, I, the Lord won't let him kill him, but if you let me mess with him, let's see if I can get him, let's see how righteous he actually is. Um, just as an aside, I, I don't think we paused long enough to ever discuss the idea that Satan had access to God's throne room after the fall. Um, so some of us will say things like God can't be in the presence of sin. He sure can. There wouldn't be anywhere else he could go. So Satan 
actually had access to the throne room to go in and do what he did best. He's the accuser. And then if just, now I'm off on a tangent. But if now, if you go read Revelation 12 and you see Satan cast out of heaven, and then the Christmas story in Revelation 12 where Jesus is born, and, um, and, and then the church is birthed, that moment happened at the cross when Satan was cast out of heaven. Satan still had plenty of access to the Lord in, uh, until then. But at the cross, he lost his ability to accuse us of anything. So kind of an interesting way that it strings together. But back on task. Um, so everything goes wrong for Job. Job's three idiot friends don't help. And then finally, God says, after 38 chapters of these morons getting it wrong, the Lord says, hey, listen up. I'm going to explain to you what happened. And uh, I love Job 38 and 39 because it just starts out with um, God talking to Job. He says, come talk to me like a man. You who think you're so brilliant. He says, gird up your loins. That basically means get in your battle positions. It's it, like to translate it into the modern English. It's put on your cup. This is going to hurt. That's kind of what God says to Job. Come talk to me like a man. And then God just dresses him down. And Job breaks, as he should, and he answers. This is after the Lord goes on this huge speech. Job says this, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, remember, remember the list of things that people struggle with God's sovereignty? Problem of evil, unanswered prayers, I don't know if mistrust in authority, but personal hardships. Three of the four there are Job's life for a rough period. And his response is to recall God's sovereignty, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So Job deals with the problem that sovereignty is now in question and then he comes back to the and this is what i hope you saw primarily in, in isaiah 46 and we'll come back to it but he comes back to the character of god what you'll see is that the biblical writers do a phenomenal job expressing that their personal circumstances and experiences cause them to question but the character of god lines them back up they look around, things aren't going well, and then they remember. It's a huge biblical concept. It's kind of the theme of the book of Deuteronomy is remember what God has done. They remember what he's done and who he is, and they're all of a sudden pulled back into orthodoxy to right belief. Genesis 50 is at the end of the Joseph narrative. Joseph gets more airtime than any other human being in the book of Genesis. Um, I think it starts in chapter 35, 36, somewhere, and it runs all the way to the end of Genesis, uh, to chapter 50. So he gets a lot of airtime. Long, long story of Joseph. Joseph, you all know, was sold into slavery by his brothers, becomes very uh, you know, successful in Egypt. Brothers discover that he's there, and, uh, and then they're like, oh, please, please don't, don't kill us, because he had the ability to and the right to, I guess. Joseph said, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Which is a huge dig. This is, I'm going to, every time we see it, point out the biblical sarcasm, which is me trying to justify my lifestyle. But um, <laughs> this is a huge dig at a group of brothers that tried to play God with Joseph. And he says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's sovereignty is clearly on display, but here's one thing that I, um, I caution us with with this particular passage. I have seen this passage. I've done it, and, then, and I've seen others do it too. This passage used to ask people not to grieve over what's going wrong in their life. This is a little bit of the uh, Romans 8, God works all things to the good for those who love him. This is the, the quit whining about your problems, bash people over the head verse. And it's really, a, again, I've done it. And, uh, and I've had to repent of that. And so just be careful saying when someone is in a desperate moment dealing with current circumstances that we don't become glib about it with these kinds of texts. And yet... This is true. This is true. Um, one, one thing that we can remember is it says that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Not what everybody means for evil, God means for good. So it's very situationally, don't rip it out of Genesis. Um, but we learned something about God here. Proverbs 16 is a huge sovereignty chapter. When I just sat down and looked at it, I'm like, well, let's do 16.1. Oh, and four, and nine, and 16, or whatever the other one was. I was like, man, this is a sovereignty chapter. This is an interesting chapter because you have to take Proverbs um, at face value and don't go much deeper, okay? Proverbs are not universal truths. They're general principles. Um, so they can, they can break if you force them to do, uh, to, to do too much. So they're more like general life maxims, um, generally true with exceptions. But they demonstrate here that the Lord is even sovereign over the minutia, the little weird things. He has this sovereignty. He says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That's a weird one. So the, the, the writer here is saying, okay, so like, you can think whatever you want, but what you say is from the Lord. It's a weird verse. And yet, what the writer says is that there is some degree of control the Lord exercises over those who would think and speak. And, and even when foolishness is permitted, we'll see that God still has a hand in that. The more I studied through the sovereignty of God, the more I realized that He doesn't just, He's not just guiding the good things we do. He's... He's got a hand in, shockingly, everything. The classic examples are who hardened Pharaoh's heart? The Lord. Who, uh, who put it in Judas to do what he was going to do? The Lord. So he is sovereign over all things good and bad. And it, it, it puts some grit to like Colossians 1, the, the Christological hymn in verses 15 through 20 where he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. And he, he's, he's the ruler over all these principalities and powers and dominions and authorities and all these things. Um, there's, a, there's a subjugation of even evil under God's sovereignty. And that's about as far as I'm willing to press it before I don't know what I'm saying anymore. But the Bible says that God is involved in all of it, not just the good parts. So, we've got to deal with that. So, Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, 
even the wicked for the day of trouble. So Ryan, are you saying that the Lord has has decided that those who would do wicked things would do them beforehand? Yeah, and we have to keep this um, integrated with the other attributes. He can't not know what will happen. So, I guess, like there's, there's nothing that's a surprise to him. There's nothing that's beyond the reach of his power. And he's still perfectly good. So, he made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked. And then it says, and they'll be judged for that. The day of trouble is not the day they cause trouble. It's the day that trouble comes back on them. It's the day of judgment is how it should be translated. I, uh, I, I, re- I was really tempted to pick and choose how each of these verses were rendered. I thought the ESV, I stuck with it to be consistent, but especially in some of the poetic areas, it doesn't really help us. But even the wicked for the day of their judgment is really how that should be rendered. Still Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. So earlier it was the heart does what it wants, and then the Lord deals with the mouth. Now it's the heart does what it wants, and the Lord deals with the feet. This is, the, this is a chapter where I could not explain why or how God is sovereign, just that he is. Left and right. Even when you gamble. The lot is cast into the lap. So think um, they cast lots for his clothes. Jesus uh, on the cross. That's a, basically a dice game. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is sovereign even over games of chance. It's weird. Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This helps us see perhaps a bit more what that whole business about the mouth and about the feet is talking about. It's, it's that man can do its thing, but the Lord, his is the only one that has a guarantee. His is the only one that will certainly take place. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And that plays out. I didn't put these passages in there because they're long, narratival passages and these are small screens. But um, if you think of the book of Daniel, where it talks about God raising up enemies of his people, wicked, wicked kings for his own purpose. Like he, he makes empires rise and fall. Um, you know the verse in uh, Galatians that says that Jesus came at the fullness of time. Um, I had a professor in seminary, he said, um, he said, God so orchestrates geopolitical systems that he believes that that fullness of timeline is talking about when conditions were right for this to happen, that there was only a 50 year, 45, 50 year period in all of human history where a Jewish man named Jesus would be crucified by the Romans for saying what he said to the Jewish leadership. He said it was like a political, like it was a perfect storm. And only in this time range would Jesus be killed the way he was for saying the things he said to the people he said them. And, it, and he said it just, it puts some, some extra layers on the whole concept of the fullness of time. And so if you think about 
Proverbs are being written, um, many of them by Solomon. So that would be 900s BC. Jesus comes along about 900 years later. So it goes from Israel being the superpower to um, Israel having a civil war shortly, probably 30, 40, 50 years after these Proverbs were written. Civil war divides into north and south. Ten terrible tribes go up to southern tribes. Uh, Judah and Benjamin stay to the south. In 722 BC, the Assyrians ransack the north, carry them off. In 586 BC, the Babylonians ransack the south, and they go into slavery in Babylon, which is where we get the books of like Ezekiel and a lot of the minor prophets are writing from Babylon, Lamentations, Jeremiah, all that stuff. Um, and then they come back, and they're never again powerful. They're never again powerful. And you just see, like, Israel, God's chosen people, right? They're trying to come back to this former glory. And, uh, well, uh, Assyria didn't last. Babylon didn't last. It became the Medo-Persian Empire. And then, uh, small thing, Alexander the Great showed up, just took all of it. And then, uh, then he died really young and split into four kingdoms. And then in the Holy Land, it's this big jostle between the Ptolemies, which would be the Egyptian empires, and the Seleucids, the Syrian empires. And then Rome finally comes and takes the Holy Land in 63 BC. And about 70 years later, Jesus shows up, is born, conditions are ripe for a Roman crucifixion. Again, we got we to make sure Isaiah 53 takes place. By his stripes we are healed. We got to make sure that Jesus is cursed by being hung on a tree. He's got to be crucified, apparently, to fulfill prophecy. And we have an empire in charge with a governor in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, with two very divisive Jewish systems, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, fighting. And Jesus makes them mad, so they go up here and they come down and crucify him. It was perfect right there. And that's how sovereign God is. That is not chance. That is God manipulating, in the very divine and good sense of the word, the situation. He is the, the Lord of history. And in that sense, he's as sovereign as it gets. Psalm 33. Um, if, you, if you listen to this and you remember back to Isaiah, um, the passage that you read actually quotes this. So it says in verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Again, back to the empires. He frustrates the plans of the people because the counsel of the Lord stands forever. That was in your Isaiah passage and the plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 93. Um, if you ever just want to warm your heart, go read the mid-90s in the Psalms. They are, um, they're like the, uh, what would I call them? They're like the royal, regal Psalms, where God is this powerful king. And they're short, and, and they're just so good. In 93, verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns, and he's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, and it shall never be moved. And then I jump down to verse 5. Your decrees, the psalmist says, are very trustworthy, and holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Like These could be worship songs. If we have any worship guys in the room, or gals, we need to start turning some of this stuff into some good music. Okay, Psalm 115 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Back to the problem of evil. If your God is so good and so powerful, where is he? In the Psalms, people are asking that question back then. Why should the nation say, where is their God? The answer, according to the Psalms, 
Because our God's in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So he didn't want to stop Katrina? Apparently not. Well, I don't like that. I never asked you to like it. You asked the question, did he want to stop it? Apparently not, because he didn't. This is where sovereignty can start to look really cold and severe. But again, we don't study God one attribute at a time. We study them all together, because we know he's not. But there is much mystery to him. In Psalm 136, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Isaiah 46, we just read this. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. He says at the end of it, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. If you really want to see his sovereignty on display in story form, go to the historical books. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Um, so, it says here in verse 4, so the setup is King Uzziah, well, he's now becoming king. His dad just died. And he was made king when he was 16 years old. So, and Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, the priest, um, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. God is sovereign to make those that follow him prosper. He's also sovereign to make those that hate him prosper. And he's also sovereign to destroy to the uttermost those who love him. That's Job and all the apostles. It continues in verses 6 and 7. Uzziah went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath um, and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities and the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. Things are going well. God helped him. God gets the credit for... This is the story of the historical books. Like, this is something I've had to really care about with my son. He loves Old Testament stories, is obsessed with all these cool, epic stories of the Old Testament. And, and I've always had to be careful about his heart that he doesn't find David so impressive because the writer of Samuel doesn't. God's the main character of the story. And, uh, and so we have to make sure that we, we keep that in focus. In Daniel, it says, so this is a, a prophetic utterance from the prophet Daniel, for his kingdom, that is Yahweh, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing compared to him. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This brings an interesting layer to the sovereignty question. It says, God is so sovereign. I think this is true. God is so sovereign, you're allowed to ask him questions, but you don't have the right to question him. If that makes sense. I, I know I'm splitting a hair there. Like I, like, I love it when my kids ask me to explain why we're doing what we're doing. But there is a tone that is like accusatory that I like okay you're no longer allowed to talk you will not talk to your dad in a way that clearly indicates you know better you don't you're I love you but you're dumb you're six and and the gap between us and and the Lord is infinitely greater than between 33 and 6 and he says 
None can say his hand, which means no one's powerful enough to stop him from doing what he wants. And none can say to him, what have you done? Ask him questions, but don't question him. There's a small difference. Okay, so we've been OT for a long time here. Let's look in the New Testament. Just a couple. Jesus shows up, calm storm. He said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Um, You guys might be familiar with the kind of storms that blew up on the Sea of Galilee. They were really sudden and unexpected. Really cool thing. Um, A couple of us got to go to Israel in the spring and do some teaching there. Um, Some video teaching, and it's still being produced. But Justin Ebert was standing, I don't know, uh, almost up to his knees in the Sea of Galilee teaching. um, Not this story, teaching another story, calling the disciples. Um, And that video, I think that lesson was 10, 12 minutes long. I was behind the camera, and I think about minute seven or eight, one of these storms blew in on camera. And it was so cool. And it went from here to waves up over his waist like that. It was so cool. I'm like, okay, you taught the wrong lesson, but that was still cool. In Matthew 10, it says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So now we're starting to talk about who should we, uh, there's there's differing degrees of sovereignty. President of the United States has a degree of sovereignty. Um, If you own your own land in Oklahoma, you have a degree of sovereignty. So it's not you're all sovereign or you're not. There's degrees. And we're, we're instructed here to discern the difference between the two. Because some can kill the body, another one can kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He's so sovereign, he's sovereign over even when birds die in the, in the wild. But even more than that, the hairs on your head are numbered under his sovereignty. Fear not, therefore, you are of much more value than many sparrows. It's kind of a little Jewish technique of a lesser to greater way of talking. The Lord knows how many hairs are on Rebecca's head. He knows which bird just died out there. And he's got you under control. He's that sovereign. In Ephesians 1, it says, In him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's sovereign. Over all these other things we describe, history and, and nature, but he's, descri- he, he's also sovereign over the plan to save those who would bend the knee willingly. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So back to our definition. An adjective describing God's power and authority such that he can override all other powers and authority. I think the biblical testimony is that that is overwhelmingly true. But we have to keep it integrated, as I've mentioned it several times. And there's a couple, one, a couple of ideas I want to draw your attention to. First, his sovereignty is governed by his perfect wisdom. He is not randomly sovereign or capriciously sovereign. He is perfectly sovereign in his perfect wisdom. So Romans 9, 10, and 11, those are the passages everybody keeps at arm's length because we're scared of what they might actually mean. But they're talking about the rejection of Christ from the Jewish nation. And at the end of that, in 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you might think that it's got a bit of an unfair message to the Jewish people. Some of the hardest passages in Scripture to interpret correctly, I think. I'm not even comfortable with my interpretation of it. So I I put that out there. Um, It might not be a negative thing. It sure seems like it. But it closes with this. He's wise and he knows all things. So his judgments and his ways are untouchable and perfectly sovereign. Second, in terms of integrated attributes, God's sovereignty is governed by his perfect justice and mercy. And I put those on the same slide on purpose. I think they're two sides of the same coin. We often make the mistake of talking about God's justice at the expense of mercy or his mercy at the expense of justice. In the biblical testimony, they are one and the same. They're inseparable, two sides of the same coin. So here we go. Isaiah 32, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. The Bible puts them together. He exalts himself to show mercy to you because he loves justice. And because of that, blessed are those who wait for him. Further, in Romans 9, again, to the messy stuff, but what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means he's not unjust. He is perfectly just. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So building an argument for the justice of God, he is looking at the mercy and compassion of God. I love how Paul juxtaposes those ideas. And they are baked into his sovereignty. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, you can almost put in parentheses, on his sovereignty, who has mercy. Later in Romans, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Or, you know, the, the fact that he is sovereign to bring to bear what he's planned to do. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. One last one, I think. Yeah. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, which is just a cool name for Jesus. Um, there is his, his foreknowledge, his predestination. I know we don't like the word predestination, but it's biblical. we got to deal with it. And his love goes into his will, his sovereignty. We can't separate it. His sovereignty is in perfect alignment with his wisdom, his mercy, and his justice. So, down to brass tacks. What do we do with it? Is sovereignty just uh, an interesting idea that I should pack away and remember? Um, I got one more verse that I think is going to help us. I think it's Proverbs 29, 25. Proverbs happen in these little parallel statements. It's, a, it's like an A, B structure all the time. A has a lot to do with B. So they're put together like that. So we have two ideas here. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So what I want to talk about is, practically speaking, a robust understanding of God's sovereignty will teach you who to fear and who not to fear. And I think this proverb says, to fear man is a fool's errand, and you better fear the Lord. So, 
misplaced fear is a very common evil. I, I really debated about whether or not to call it an evil thing. I wanted to say it was a mistake or something we just accidentally do, but nope. I think to fear mankind is to be wicked. So, uh, and I think the scriptures will bear that out. The fear of man lays a snare. So, I, I, just a couple of things that result whenever you and I have a... Um, have an unrealistic or misplaced fear in one of us humans. First, the fear of others often leads to sin. What do I mean by that? Um, Paul, Paul Weiss came in my office yesterday and he's reading this really cool book um, about the Ten Commandments and it's actually making the case that the Tenth Commandment, that you shall not covet, is the source of breaking all the other ones. He says, we are, this author, she, Nancy, uh, Nancy Piercy, I think is her name. Uh, she says that the reason we don't worship God well, or the reason we won't Sabbath well, or the reason that we do all of these things, we don't honor our father and mother, where we'll tell lies, is because we want something we don't have. And she says, jealousy, we, it, we, we used to call it pride, but she thinks maybe even a layer deeper than that, jealousy is at the very foundation of most of our sin. And the more I thought about that, I couldn't come up with an example to the contrary. So I'm going to have to go with it for now. But when I fear your opinion of me, or I fear that I'm going to, to look less than I want to in front of people, if I have, if I have a, a fear that shame is right around the corner, if I don't do X, Y, or Z, Watch how wicked I become to preserve myself because of that fear. You start to manipulate. You start to be less than truthful. You start to covet other people's things. It leads to sin. And that's just in our community. I think the fear of others is a significant obstacle to accepting the gospel. So I don't know how many of you have been in like a difficult evangelistic context and ask the question, why, why are, um, excuse me, why is Ryan so resistant to accepting the gospel? Maybe I've counted the cost and I'm scared of what it's going to cost me. Ask, ask adult converts how they think through this. I talk about this a lot with, with Mary's husband. We were both, we both came to faith and he was a little younger than I was, but as a teenager and so I think he was like 16 and I was 19. And it cost, I can't speak for him, it cost me a lot to become a Christian at 19. I had a life. I had a lot of friends, and they were like, if I was going to take this Jesus thing serious, they were gone overnight. Um, and, I, and I would guess that you have a number of people that are, their fear of what's going to happen should they accept Christ is the number one obstacle to their submission to the gospel. fear of others causes some to fall away. The church is becoming less and less cool, guys. You've seen it. Um, but if we hold to, say, a traditional, like, a, I'm not even going to say traditional, to a biblical sexual ethic and a biblical perspective on a lot of the hot-button issues that are today, that are, that are coming out today, it, it seems so much easier to, to, to slide with the church or to distance yourself from the church. And it's because I don't want to be the backwards loser. 
I, I hate this phrase, but it, it, it'll strike real fear in some people's hearts. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, which is such a foolish, stupid, and it will be a short-lived phase. <laughs> um, but the, that fear is causing some to disengage from the church. It's causing some to, in so doing, fall away from the faith because they fear what others think. Finally, the fear of others manifests in a lapse of character, which is not all that much different than leading to sin. But uh, you guys are familiar uh, of a situation where you've been, you know someone so well, and then all of a sudden they're around a different person, and you can just hear them phrasing things in a really weird way, and they're, they're kind of hedging their bets. They're trying to live in two worlds at once. And it's like, I don't know if I'm going to question your integrity because you're not the same person I saw on Sunday morning or that I see at all, you know, all the things that we do as brothers in Christ. All of a sudden, your buddy from high school shows up and you talk different. We need to have a character conversation. Maybe watch some Veggie Tales. Talk about that. <laughs> so that's misplaced fear. But the other half of the proverb says rightly oriented fear, fearing God, not for your destruction, but because of his good sovereignty, is a precious safeguard against evil. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And here are some things that I thought that it might save us from. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe from the damning and conquering power of sin. We don't, um, we don't talk enough about how powerful sin is and how, um, how much it snowballs in people's lives. But if I fear man, that snowball can get away from me. If I fear the Lord, it is much more reasonable for me to repent and grow sanctified. Trusting in the Lord offers safety from the overwhelming force of temptation. Temptation's biggest allure is that when I satisfy that temptation, I will feel good about it. It's like it, temptation is a cheeseburger. I really want it. And then by the time I pile all the other stuff on there with it, three hours later, why did I do that? It offers safety from the depressing effects of sorrow. I don't want to mock sorrow or depression. I do want to say biblically that much sorrow is remedied with an, a renewed attention to the character of God. And that does not mean that there is not much room in God's economy for how he cares for his people for real counseling and therapy and medication and the whole gamut. However, there is an incredible call to, as followers of Christ, focus on the character of God when we are in the depths of despair. What else would the valley of the shadow of death be? From the devouring force of Satan, which I guess could sum up the other ones. It also protects us from, should you, just, should you think about falling away from the faith, let me just say, a fear of the Lord protects you from death, from hell, and from every evil thing that is involved in that package. And then finally, back to fearing man, it protects us from all injury which others can inflict. 
Um, a few years ago, I went and spoke um, to a group of people about the biblical perspective on um, self-defense. And I was really, I, I thought long and hard about that. Um, and I went in and I, and I talked to these people. And I just said, one thing, well, I have several truths. Let's put them out there. Let's do the Katina approach. Let's put them out there and see what shakes out. One, life is precious. Two, we should defend the defenseless. Three, um, I, I have a responsibility to my family and those people that live inside my home. Okay? But when Christians begin insisting on their rights to fill in the blank, I have a hard time reconciling that with a Bible that calls me, with a scripture and a Holy Spirit and the life of Christ that calls me to take up my cross daily and die. And to constantly serve other people and to pour myself out, as Paul says, as a drink offering for others. To, to serve in order to be great instead of looking for the first position in order to be great. So I say that because from all injury which others can inflict, um, I, I really hope that we see in the sovereignty of God that, that it really is, like vengeance is his. There is no call for us to retaliate, to get ours, to get our pound of flesh. Um, I'm not saying that we just sit around and, and look for ways to just take it. There's something to that old turn the other cheek business. And there's something in that outdo one another in honor business. Christianity's a race to the bottom. So if someone is, is doing something against me, maybe I should trust the sovereignty of God. A couple of theologians who had some interesting things to say about this. This is on your paper. This guy's a Puritan in England. It's not an American Puritan. Listen to this. He says, The soul that cannot entirely trust God, whether man be pleased or displeased. So he says, like, the, the soul that, that, that doesn't trust God because they're so concerned with, uh, with whether or not a human being is happy or not, that man, or that soul can never long be true to him, to God. Can't be true to God. For while you are eyeing man, you are losing God and stabbing Christianity at the very heart. And I thought that was so interesting. It's almost like that could be a commentary on that proverb. So our last passage is Isaiah 41. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And I gave you this verse because... Actually, I don't think it's on your paper, so I'm going to have to write it down. But um, I gave it to you because it gives us the categories of creator and created. It's you're a worm or you're the Holy One. That's, those are the two categories. And so my challenge to us is, will you fear a mere worm or the Holy One? Who do we trust here? We'll close with one of my favorite quotes. And I find just about any reason to put it in any lesson. By this, um, he's a French Dominican, so monk. 
um, from the 19th century. He says, if God would concede or give me his omnipotence, that's his all, like his all-powerness, omnipotent, if you would give me his strength, his omnipotence for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. Think about that. If you could do anything, what would you change? Then he says, but if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. And I would let Katrina roll in too. And that is a haunting idea. That I think it's true. If I could do anything that he could do, watch what I would do. And then he says, but if you knew what he knew, watch how you do exactly what he's already doing. Which is just this profound idea about how much we can trust his sovereignty. Um, that's all I got. Kelsey, how does this end? Yeah. We're going to bring, bring up into a few uh, groups to just kind of process and discuss. So uh, maybe round up in a group of three or four people around you. Um, and the first thing you can just discuss is what stood out to you from tonight. <laughs>